in November 1937, somewhere in White Sands, New Mexico. In a vast network of tunnels, there was rumored to be found 79 skeletons and then in an adjacent tunnel, 16,000 gold bars, estimated to be valued at around $1.7 billion. Does it exist? Or was it simply one man's hoax? You're listening to the Mysterious Brews Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of the Victorio Peak Treasure. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels. Of Georgia. Hey, they don't call me two-take coach for nothing, boy. You nailed that one. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, we have sent out all of our Patreon patrons their stickers. You new patrons should have those by the time you hear this. I ain't getting no damn stickers. I gave you a shit ton when you thought you was going out west. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're in my glove box. <laughs> I got to take it back. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we have had some great, great uh, feedback on our top five episode, bottom five episode, of really? course. Yeah, it's all off patron, but... Uh, oh, well, since one of us has... Uh, access and one access. of us doesn't. Yeah. So um, everybody's like... They honestly, this I'm not making this up. Several people have said we love all the content, whether y'all like it or not. We don't see a bottom five, and like we tried to say, they wasn't really bad episodes. We just Chad Mauer's a bad episode. Chad Mauer deserved better. Chad Mauer deserves to be heard. That is a bad episode because you can't hear it. The rest of them you can argue, and we said that definitely. Those bottom five are definitely better than the first bottom five. True. All five of them, including Chad Mauer. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, that's, I mean, great. I, I, I'm, I'm so glad they said that. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm glad that uh, what we feel like is not good is still good for the community. It's like, you know, it's like pizza and sex. Even when it's bad, it's still pretty good. Yeah, it's still good pizza. I mean. I mean, it's still pizza. There wasn't any sex out there or pizza. He just turned around. I was staring out into oblivion. But anyway. I'll take either one right now. Boy. So we have, like in the previous episode, Coach had stated, we've kind of gotten away from the murder and the miss, the uh, missing persons. It's coming back. Yeah, it's coming don't back. Tell, don't y'all worry about that. Chad Mauer's going to come back because that'll be my next choice. Chad Mauer, redo. You only want to do that because you saved the notes. You won't have to look it up again. I guarantee you I don't have the notes. Let me pull it up. I guarantee everything that I want to redo, I do not have the damn notes. <laughs> I swear to you, I don't. Wouldn't that be some shit? Me having to redo Chad Mauer. So aside from the Roswell incident, the legend of the Victorio Peak treasure is probably the most notorious tale in this great state of New Mexico. The peak's a rugged outcropping of rock barely 500 feet tall located in the center of a dry desert lake known as Hembrillo Basin. Beyond the basin is a hundred-mile area of desert known as the Jornada del Muerto, which means... Something death. The journey of death. Because during the early Spanish explorations, travelers took this shortcut through hostile Apache Indian tor- territory. Many died from either Indian attacks and others perished from the harsh desert conditions. Native American attacks. Yes, I apologize. Victorio Peak lies within the White Sands Missile Range in south-central New Mexico. The peak was previously known as Soledad Peak after a fierce battle between the Army and Chief Victorio of the Apaches in 1880. The peak assumed the new name of Victorio Peak to honor Chief Victorio. It should not be confused with Victoria Peak in the Black Range Mountains near Kingston, New Mexico. Duly noted. Thank you. Long before Victorio Peak was taken over and surrounded by White Sands, a man named Milton Ernest Noss, better known as Doc Noss, took time exploring the Victorio Peak while he was deer hunting. 
Noss was an Oklahoma native, but traveled all over the Southwest looking for adventure. In 1933, he married Ova Beckworth, better known as Babe. I'd have uh, gave her a nickname, too. No offense to her. I'm sure she was a lovely lady. <laughs> they made their home in Hot Springs, New Mexico, which was later known as Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. You know, as badass of a name that is, because it really is, they named themselves after a game show. That's exactly what I was about to say. It, I mean, after the television game show of the 1950s. It sounds stupid when you know the, the true story, but man, when you just hear it, truth or consequences, New Mexico, that sounds like a serious freaking town. What if they had like strip clothes everywhere? If I'm not mistaken, I believe that's where Cactus Jack, the professional wrestler, Mick Foley, I believe that's where he was billed out of. Hmm. Interesting. But man, it sounds like you don't want to mess around in that town. <laughs> So in November 1937, Doc, Babe, and four others left on a deer hunt into the Hembrillo Basin, setting up camp on the desert floor at the base of Victorio Peak. The men headed into the wilderness while the wives stayed at camp. Keep in mind, it is the 30s. Hunting by himself, Doc scouted the base of the mountain. When it began to rain, he sought shelter under a rocky overhang near the summit of the mountain. While waiting for the rain to subside, he noticed a stone that looked like it had, quote, been worked in some fashion. Reaching down, he was unable to budge it, but after digging around the rock, he got his hands under it. Lifting the rock, he found a hole that led straight down into the mountain. Doc saw an old man-made shaft with a thick wooden (laughs) pole attached at one side. Doc thought he had discovered an old abandoned man shaft. (laughs) When the rain finally stopped, Doc returned to camp telling Babe of his discovery. They decided to keep the discovery between themselves and to return later. Yeah, I would too. Well, shit, yeah. A few days later, the two were back at the site with ropes and flashlights. Testing the old wooden pole attached to one side, Doc decided quickly that he was not going to use it and dropped the rope down into the shaft. And then he proceeded down said rope. As Babe looked on from above, Doc inched his way down the narrow passageway into the mountain nearly 60 feet. Near the bottom, he encountered a huge boulder hanging from the ceiling, almost blocking his way. Hmm. I'm thinking like Indiana Jones, big, big boulder. Well, yeah, but if it's hanging there, somebody had to hang it. Yeah, I know. I never, nobody ever went into uh, detail, probably because no one else has ever seen what he saw, but... Finally reaching the bottom, Doc stepped into a chamber the size of a small room. On the walls were drawings, some were painted, and others were chiseled. They appeared to have been made by Native Americans. At one end of the chamber, the shaft continued downward. Once again, Doc began to descend, this time about 125 feet before the shaft again leveled off into a large natural cavern. Several smaller rooms had been chiseled from the rock along one of the walls. Stepping into the dock, darkness, Doc was alarmed when he saw a human skeleton kneeling and securely tied to a stake driven into the ground. The skeleton's hands were bound behind its back. Apparently, the person had been deliberately left there to die. Apparently, my ass, if the hands are behind and he's tied to a stake, it ain't apparent, it's for sure. We was just playing hide and seek. (laughs) We forgot. (laughs) We forgot Billy. Son of a gun. I thought you were getting Billy. I got him last time. (laughs) (sighs) Within moments, he found even more skeletons, most of them bound and secured to stakes just like the first one he found. Exploring further, he found even more skeletons stacked in a small enclosure, much like a burial chamber. All told, he found supposedly 27 human skeletons in the caverns. As Doc continued to explore the That's not what my research said. It said like 79. That's why I said it in the opening. Well, that's what I was going to come back to. Okay. Well, you do that then. Okay. As he continued to explore (laughs) the side caverns, he found an enormous amount of treasure, including coins, jewels, saddles, priceless artifacts, including a gold statue of the Virgin Mary. He also found some old letters, the most recent of which was dated 1880. The treasure was only the beginning. In a deeper cavern, Doc found what he thought was a, a stack of worthless iron bars. 
He estimated they were thousands of these bars, each weighing over 40 pounds, stacked against a wall. He was barely able to lift one, much less think of carrying it back to the surface. Later, the wealth in the cave would be calculated to be worth more than $2 billion. It's a lot of money. Doc filled his pockets with gold coins, grabbed a couple of jeweled swords, and laboriously returned to Babe, waiting anxiously at the surface. To give you all an idea of just how much money that is, that's at least 15 days worth of Jeff Bezos' work. Like, he's got to work at least 15 straight days to make $2 billion. I took all I had not spit that over. I know, I was hoping he was going to. Oh, God. I'd have took it just to see your reaction. After telling her about what he had seen and showing her the loot, she insisted he take his little ass back into the mine and get one of them air bars. After much searching, he found a smaller iron bar that he could carry back through the narrow passageways. When he reached the surface, he told Babe, this is the last damn time one of them babies I'm bringing out. Dang. Babe rolled the bar over and noticed a yellow gleam where the gravel of the hillside had scratched off what she assumed was centuries of black grime. (laughs) What looked like a piece of iron was actually a solid golden Ingot. Uh, what? Solid gold what? Ingot. What the hell's that? A bar. I didn't say bar. I just did. Yeah, what the hell? This ain't the freaking old English podcast. People don't understand what the hell you're saying half the time anyway. You're speaking the truth over her. After the discovery of the treasure, Doc and Babe spent every free moment exploring the tunnels inside the peak living in a tent at the base of it. On each trip, Doc would retrieve two gold bars, which, by the power of persuasion, she said, get more than their gold bars. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I'm, I've never held a gold bar, but I know they're heavy. But you know what? I can get more than two of them. That's a weight I'm willing to do. I can get you three, guaranteed, if I have to hold one between my legs. And duck walk. Yeah. At one time, he brought out a crown which contained 243 diamonds and one pigeon blood ruby. Now, who going to count that? How many? Who going to count all them diamonds, first of all? And how do you know what pigeon blood looks like? I don't know. I guess it's nice. I mean, and in what world do we judge the beauty of rubies, rubies by, pigeon, by blood. pigeon blood? Doesn't it, isn't blood usually blood, though? It's red. Rubies are supposed to be red. Yeah, but I mean, is there some sort of. Is it like clear, though? Is there some sort of beautiful quality to pigeon blood? Now we're going to have to go out there and kill one to find out. Well, I can see about six right now. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Doc trusted no one, even Babe. Yeah. And disappeared into the desert, hiding treasure wherever he felt he could. Yeah, I'd be like, look, I I mean. I got to go piss again. Like, well, Babe, we had a good run, but. uh, Deuces. (laughs) Here's uh, (laughs) a. Here's a couple gold bars, but... uh, Take your ass home. I don't even want to see you again. If I ever see you around here, don't you ever come back to Chucky's again. You son of a bitch. She said I was going to take the gold, and I said, you better not. (laughs) You better not. (laughs) Among the other artifacts, Doc is reported to have retrieved documents that were dated 1797, which he buried in the desert in a Wells Fargo chest, along with other treasures. Although the originals have never been recovered, a copy of one of the documents was a translation from Pope Pius III. Well, how the hell do you know if it's a copy? How they the didn't... hell do you know it's pigeon blood? <laughs> I think we're hung up on pig... Fucking, I'm looking it up. Boy, think... keep... Go on, you rant, boy. Go. I'm thinking that we've already solved it. That this case is bullshit. This guy's like, tell him, tell him it sparkles like the jewel from a virgin's butthole. Like what? <laughs> yeah, and it had ver. Uh, it is a designated GRS certified. No fucking way. Yes, sir. Show me. Show me what pigeon blood looks like. Show me what a pigeon blood ruby looks like. They're thirty-two thousand dollars. Some bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it is beautiful pigeon blood. It let is. me tell you. That second one right there, that's that's some pretty, that's some pretty, pretty, pretty stuff. Son of a bitch. Okay, so maybe they they're onto something with pigeon blood. Those are beautiful. They are beautiful, but who made that shit up? Like, who's we got to certify these colors? What do you think, there, Bill? 
Well, I just knocked the shit out of this pigeon. Does it look like that? <laughs> my God, it does. Well, then, by God, that's our new name for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to the Pope. This document was translated, and it supposedly said, Seven is the holy number, the passage begins. It then continues for several lines before ending with a cryptic message. In seven languages, seven signs, and languages in seven foreign nations, look for the seven cities of gold. Seventy miles north of El Paso del Norte, in the seventh peak, Soledad. These cities have seen the seven sealed doors. Three sealed toward the rising of the soul sun, three sealed toward the setting of the soul sun, one deep within Casa del Cuerva de Oro at high noon receive health, wealth, and honor. Now, believers think that Doc found the Casa del Cuervo de Oro, which is the Spanish for the House of the Golden Cave or Soledad. That's what I was, I oh mean, I was, you, you, got, you beat me to it. Sorry, I was, man. I was going to display my high school Spanish skills. He apparently also found the seventh door located at high noon. But the promised health, wealth, and honor would evade him. Four years before his discovery, Congress had passed the Gold Act, which outlawed the private ownership of gold, so Doc was unable to profit from his his treasure on the open market. He didn't care about the historical value of the treasures inside Victoria Peak, so he mostly ignored the pouches, packs, and artifacts while he concentrated on the gold coins and bars. Although he was unable to sell the gold bars on the open market, he continued to work tirelessly to remove the treasure. Why couldn't you sell them on the open market? Because it was illegal at that time. Congress had passed the Gold Act. Oh, yeah, you're right. Oh, good. Man, look at you, bro. I know. I'm a math teacher with the history facts. Killing it. Nice. In the spring of 1938, Doc and Babe went to Santa Fe to establish legal ownership of the fine, filing a lease with the state of New Mexico for the entire section of land surrounding Victoria Peak. Subsequently, he also filed several mining claims on and around Victoria Peak, as well as a treasure trove claim. With legal ownership now established, he began to openly work the claim, but he also became increasingly paranoid, hiding even more gold bars all over the desert. When Doc's story eventually became headline news, scholars began speculating on how the enormous treasure could have come to be stashed inside the peak. Some believe that Doc found the Casa del Cuervo de Oro. <laughs> Others believe... <laughs> okay. I don't often overemphasize Latin American words, but when I do, I drink those gatkies. Yeah, Clearly. Others believe that Nas found the treasure of Don Juan de Onete, who in not in I'm sorry in 1598 founded New Mexico as a Spanish colony, seeking out the seven cities of gold. Onate was said to have been a cruel man, brutally subjugating the Native Americans to do his bidding by beating and torturing them. Reportedly, he amassed a fortune of gold, silver and jewels before being ordered back to Mexico City in 1607. Yeah. Now, others speculate the treasure could be the missing wealth of Emperor Maximilian, who served as Mexico's emperor in the 1860s. If you're going to be a rich emperor, that's a pretty good name for you. When Maximilian heard of a plot to assassinate himself, he began to move his golden treasure out of Mexico. Legend says he sent a palace full of valuables to the United States to be hidden. He was assassinated in 1867, and then Chief Victorio enters the story. The most colorful legend associated with the treasure concerns the great Warm Springs Apache war chief who used the entire Hembrillo Basin as his stronghold. He absolutely refused to live on the San Carlos Reservation in Arizona where his people died from hunger and insect bites. Victorio's land had always been in the mountains of New Mexico and a treaty between the federal government in Washington and his band had promised they could stay on those lands as long as, quote, the mountains stand and the rivers flowed, end quote. With the discovery of gold in the mountains, the government does what the government always does. Well, they do's what they do's. And they broke that there treaty. <sighs> and Victorio decided, not on my watch, and he went on the warpath. 
Knowing how much the white man valued gold and having little use for it himself, he amassed huge amounts of it any way he could get it. He and his warriors raided throughout the Hornada and the Rio Grande Valley, attacking wagon trains, churches, immigrants, mail coaches, and anything else that promised riches. He raided the stage lines all over southern New Mexico and Texas in an all-out war against the U.S. Army and the Texas Rangers. He also took prisoners back to the basin and subjected them to an elaborate torture as a test of their bravery before killing them. This could possibly explain the skeletons in the cavern. It would also explain the presence of the Wells Fargo bags, pack saddles, letters, and other artifacts dating to Victorio's time. Another theory is that the treasure belonged to a Catholic missionary named Felipe LaRue, or LaRue's, as church documents are said to give his name. He was a native of France and was among the small group of priests who volunteer for service in Mexico. His party sailed to Florida, crossed the Gulf to Veracruz, and from there he went to Mexico City by ox cart. After a short rest, Padre LaRue left for the north where he took up his work among the savages at a large hacienda near what is now the city of Chihuahua, reaching there in 1798. From the people at his new station, he heard stories of a magnificent source of rich minerals in the mountains to the north. If he was interested in the stories, he did not reveal it at the time. Instead, he continued with his teachings and ministering to the sick and spiritual needs of his small parish. Among his parishioners was an old man who had been an explorer and soldier of fortune during his youth. This man had traveled wildly and widely over the country to the north. And as Padre LaRue personally cared for this ailing old man, the two became good friends. Cue the rich music. One day, Padre LaRue asked about the riches which lay to the north, and the old man said that if the good priest wanted gold, there was a rich deposit of it located high in the mountains about two days' travel from El Paso de Norte, which is the present-day site of El Paso, Texas. No way. I know that's a well, shocker. I, Are you okay over there? I mean, I am in complete the, the, and utter disbelief. Color left your face. <laughs> According to the legend, the man said, quote, After one day's travel from El Paso del Norte, you will come to three small peaks yet further to the north. Upon first sight of these peaks... Turn to the east and cross the desert toward the mountains. In the mountains you will find a basin where there is a spring at the foot of a solitary peak. On this peak you will find the gold. End quote. A few days later, the old man passes away. It was not until the crops failed that Padre LaRue thought of the solitary peak filled with gold. His little parish needed water and a better climate, and he called everyone together, asking if they would follow him northward. They all agreed. And the small party set out for the new country. After crossing El Paso del Norte, they followed the course of the Rio Grande to the small village of La Masilla, near Las Cruces. North of there, they sighted the three peaks and turned east across the dreaded Ornada del Muerto, finally arriving in the San Andreas Mountains, not fault. After a couple of days of exploration, they located a basin in which there was a spring at the base of a solitary peak, just as the old man had said. Scholars also believe the basin was Hembrillo Basin. In the solitary peak, it was Soledad Peak, which is now modern-day Victoria. Padre LaRue established a crude camp and sent the men out to search for the gold the old man had promised was there. On one side of the peak, they located a rich vein and ultimately worked that mine for years. They tunneled into the mountain and followed the vein downward. The deeper they went, the richer the vein became. The little priests assigned dozens of monks and Indians to mine for gold, form it into ingots, and except for whatever was needed for supplies, stack it along one of the walls of a natural cavern inside the mountain. Word eventually reached church officials back in Mexico City that the hacienda had been abandoned and that Padre LaRue's tiny colony was missing. A search party went to investigate. When they returned and reported that the entire population had left for the mountains to the north, Soldiers were dispatched with orders to locate the priests and demand an explanation. It was when a small group was in La Masilla purchasing supplies 
that they learned that the Mexican army was on the horizon. Hurrying to camp, they sounded the alarm. It was one thing for Padre LaRue to leave his post without permission of church officials in Mexico City, but it was quite another not to deliver the royal fifth, or quinta, of gold for shipment back to Spain. Padre LaRue was in a lot of trouble, and he immediately set about concealing all traces of the mine. Working day and night, knowing the soldiers were drawing closer, he had his little group labor to conceal the entrance. When the soldiers finally arrived and demanded to know where the gold came from that was used to purchase the supplies in La Masia, Padre LaRue refused to answer. He died under torture, as did many of his followers, and all those soldiers looked all over for evidence of a mine. They were forced to return to Mexico City with hats in hand. Hmm. The Lost Padre Mine, as it has been called ever since, went into the history pages as a misguided legend. That is, until the fall of 1939, when a man named who? Duck. I forgot his name yeah. already. So supposedly that is what happened, or that is the origins of where the mind is actually, or the mine came from, how the, the gold got there. I think I'd believe it more if it was just like, oh, we just found a bunch of gold. No, you found perfectly square bars. You found crowns. You found all, I mean, come on. What, where did it come from? Where to get it? I don't Who know. put it there? You telling me primitive Native American drawings on the wall, but you're finding perfectly molded bars. You're finding coins. You're finding. Well, I mean, I don't know, man. I'm not saying it ain't possible, but well, in the fall of '39, I smell something. Doc wanted to enlarge the passageway, and he hired a mining engineer named S.E. Montgomery, and the two went to the mountain to blast out the shaft. The engineer suggested that they use eight sticks of dynamite, which Noss said, I'm no expert, but I think that's too much, and I would have to agree with Doc. I'm thinking eight might be too big. I say start with one. Yeah, and, and if then, that don't work, go to two. Build it up a <laughs> We don't start bit. with eight. Eight's not your starting point. <laughs> Eight sticks of dynamite in the 30s, that shit's so unstable. Yeah, that's why the people in the gold mines, the guys that lit the dynamite made an extra dollar a day because most of them didn't make it out. Now, this, quote, expert supposedly wins the argument, blasts the eight sticks, and guess what? He causes a cave-in, and all the shafts collapse. And Doc loses his ever-loving mind. Because he cannot gain His entry. gold mine? Oh, look at you. <laughs> <laughs> now, this leaves him a bitter, I, angry man. My, like, this podcast, like, there's, if you go back to the beginning, I'm a contributor. I did some research. I got good things to put in, you know, good things to say at times. I have devolved into just trying to crack you up and mess you up. Like, that's all I'm trying to do. Like, that's my whole goal in this podcast. It's the shtick, man. It's our like, shtick. I wouldn't even be here if it wasn't trying to fuck you up. Like, oh, he fucked up again. I'm just going to start. <laughs> I'm going to start cutting your words in. Yeah. Oh, Sounds man. like me. Uh, Was yeah. I there for that one? Yeah, man. You don't remember it? No. Yeah. That would be awful. If, like, literally. I'm going to do that. If you cut, maybe a Patreon only. You take the time to cut every word you say out of an episode and just be like the three minutes of my, you're an idiot. Like, <laughs> mysterious Bruce featuring the coach. And it's like, God dang, he really don't contribute much, does he? Oh, that is perfect. <laughs> That you do that and you unedit me. Like you just leave in my intro and like, man, it was seventeen minutes of an intro. I forgot at the beginning of this one. They really like your uh Patreon singing, the way that I've cut that one from that one episode and I put it on all the Patreon episodes. I know. Now. I was like, I I, I You're like, I ain't saying that I in did, like months. I, I did I said I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Cause I, I was tired, I, I hadn't slept, and I was like, I don't remember singing. Singing. Did I sing? <laughs> self. Like, self. Did I sing? What? <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> That's funny. All right, we got new uh, bonus content. We got plenty of bonus content now. Yeah, we do. Just right. a little time and a lot of patience. That's all <laughs> you need. Makes all the difference. That's all you need. So Doc, pissed off, bitter, takes it out on Babe. 
and they divorced in 1945, November. Two years later, he's not bitter and angry anymore, but he marries this woman Do named... Do you know how bad your marriage has to be for you to get a divorce in 1945? Your marriage is so bad that you don't give a shit about the war in the Pacific. <laughs> Fuck the war effort. I'm getting away from this dude. <laughs> like, that's amazing. That's bad. Now, he marries Violet Lena Bowles. Now, this would complicate the ownership of the treasure claim for years. Now, instead of having thousands of gold bars to draw from... Noss only had a few hundred that he had hidden in the desert. I don't give a shit. I'll take a few hundred over nothing. I'll take one. One. (laughs) Just give me one. I mean, I'll I'll leave you the hell alone if you just give me one. Becoming desperate for cash, Doc, along with another man, allegedly transported gold bars, coins, jewels, and artifacts into Arizona, selling them on the black market. For nine years, Doc had attempted to sell his gold, but it was difficult finding buyers. I don't, I don't understand that either. I mean, it was a different time. Like you said, the gold standard and all that shit. But how do you find, not find somebody willing to buy a gold bar? Or better yet, smelt that shit down into manageable pieces. Hell, nick that shit and sell Shave it. Shave it. Yeah, like fucking... You want to go panning? I'll yeah. hide some in some rocks. You give me $60, I'll yeah. get you a half a flake. Son of a bitch, look at this. I got the motion of the ocean. <laughs> I had done hit the flakiest flakes you've ever flaked, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That'll be a good one. (laughs) No context. Flakiest flakes, you motherfuckers. In 1948, Doc met Charles Ryan, a Texan involved in drilling operations and oil exploration. How did I know a Texan was going to come in and buy all this damn gold? In West Texas. I mean, he got the six shooters and everything. I'm picturing the dude off the Simpsons. Yeah. Noss made an agreement with Ryan to exchange some of the gold bars for $25,000 to reopen the shaft. Meanwhile, Babe has filed a counterclaim on the entire area, and she said, "Uh uh-uh, it ain't all yours, brother. Denied entry by the courts until the legalities could determine the owner, the correct legal owner, Doc feared Ryan would back out of the deal. Sensing a double cross by Ryan, Doc dug up the gold that was to be used in the exchange and reburied it in place where Ryan didn't know. Ain't that just what they do? The next day, March 5th, 1949, Ryan arrives at the area, insisting they discuss the problem of what happened to the gold. However, Noss demanded to see the money before revealing the new hiding place. Ryan hinted that if Noss did not reveal the whereabouts of the gold... Doc would not live long enough to enjoy it. A strong argument ensued, and Noss, pissed off, headed towards his car. Ryan fears Doc was going to get a gun and fires a warning shot in Doc's direction, demanding that Noss back away from the vehicle. Doc refused, and Ryan fired again, shooting him in the head, killing him instantly. So just 12 years after discovering the treasure... He died with $2.16 in his pocket. That's not a lot. Even in 1949, that's not a lot. Ryan was charged with murder, but was later acquitted. Even back in 1949, if you had money, you got a great defense team. I mean, that's the way it's always been. Hell, you probably didn't even have a defense team. You just say, hey, man, I got this money. You want it? You're acquitted. Sold. I own some oil in Texas. Y'all kiss my ass. Yep, there it goes. So as the years passed, Babe held on to her claim at Victoria Peak, occasionally hiring men to help her clear the shaft. However, it was a slow, arduous process. Oh, her shaft? They had to clear her shaft? Yes, they did. Heavy equipment. <laughs> Why, Dr. Evil, I've always thought you were crazy. <laughs> so... In 1955, the White Sands Missile Range unexpectedly expanded their operations to encompass the entire Embryo Basin. Bay began a regular correspondence with the military requesting permission to work her claim, but she was always denied. From that moment on, every attempt of Babes to clear the rubble from the blocked shaft was met with a military escort out of the area. So they weren't very good at clearing her shaft, were Mm -mm. they? Mm. 
She left so unsatisfied. Even military men couldn't satisfy her chefs. Well, they're with right, we Sean gotta, Connery. All right, we gotta stop because that we are selling a legitimately dead woman's name, and we can't do that. Yeah, we. I. Are you appalled? I, no, I'm apologizing to Babe prof- and her. Yes, profusely. You should, because you're a bastard. I just don't want no more hate mail. I'll take any the, the good. The good. <laughs> the good people in Arkansas did not know how much that affected me negatively. I felt bad for weeks. Now, this was the beginning of a long legal battle over the ownership of the claim. So the military says that the state of New Mexico and the officials on November 14, 1951, withdrew prospecting, entry, location, and purchase under any mining laws, reserving the land for military use only. However, disputing the military's claim, New Mexico officials stated that they leased only the surface of the land to the military. Further, they stated that underground wealth in whatever form it took belonged to the state or to any legal license holders. Becoming even more complicated, a search of mining records failed to turn up any existing claims, including that of Doc. Do you mean that the military may have gone in and took out the claims? In the 50s? Never. Never happened. Additionally, the actual land where Victoria Peak is located was not owned by the state of New Mexico, but rather by a man named Roy Henderson, who had leased it to the Army. The dispute was finally worked out when a federal court issued a compromise of sort, which stated the Army would continue to use the surface, but no one would be allowed on the property without the Army's consent. In effect, no one could mine, and that included the Army and Babe. Now, even though the military refused any of Babe's efforts to work her claim, it didn't. It apparently did not refuse other military personnel from exploring the portions of Victoria Peak. Two airmen from nearby Holloman Air Force Base would later say that they had found the gold cavern from another natural opening in the side of the peak. Those soldiers were Airman First Class Thomas Burlett and Captain Leonard V. Fage. I don't. It's not spelt that way. I don't know why that made me giggle, but it, yeah, I giggled a little. I'm sorry. They said they had approximately found 100 gold bars weighing between 40 and 80 pounds each. Each. Dang. In a small cavern. That's a big old bar. After the discovery, Fage told several people that he had caved in the roof and walls to make it look like the tunnel ended. Neither man, being familiar with laws governing the discovery of treasure on military base, went to the judge advocate office on Holloman to confer with Colonel Sigmund Gasewitz. Now there were two military commands involved. I'm trying, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is so much better than the damn Russian one. Yeah, that was that was rough. Burlett and Fage formed a corporation to protect what they had found, as well as making a formal application to enter White Sands for a search and retrieval of gold. However, White Sands issued a declaration expressly forbidding them to return to the base. In the summer of 61, upon the advice of the director of the Mint, Major General John Schinkel, that's another good one, of White Sands allowed Captain Fage and Captain Orby Swanner, Major Kelly, and Colonel Gorman to work the claim. On August 5th, Fage and his party returned to Victoria Peak, accompanied by the commander of the missile range, a Secret Service agent, and 14 MPs. Try as he would, Fage was unable to penetrate the opening he had used just three years earlier. General Schinkel finally had enough and ordered everyone out. Later, Fage would take a lie detector test, which would allow him back on the missile range, but to no avail, and Fage and Bartlett were left empty-handed. Or were they? There are people that say the CIA were involved with facilitating removal of the treasure and gold, possibly involving approval or direction from President Nixon himself. Various parties who claimed to have extracted a few bars from Victoria Peak or were associated with such explorations have been since threatened, moved away, or died in suspicious circumstances. And then there's the time in early June of 1963 that President Kennedy and Vice President Johnson visited White Sands, which sources claimed included a visit to Victoria Peak. 
Following JFK's assassination, B-24 flights began carrying Victoria Peak Gold to a ranch in Mexico, which was owned by President Lyndon Johnson, who had purchased it from the Mexican president, President Alleman. I was going to say that. Why are you always, why are you always telling everything? Then I, I just get to sit here <laughs> playing Candy Crush. <laughs> now, what's key in all of this to chase this conspiracy theory is a man named Jim McKee. He is a gold investor in Delaware. He states he was approached in 1989 by representatives of a Texas man named Billy Carr who purportedly had been a friend of LBJ. McKee was told that Carr was working with the Johnson family to unload six million ounces of gold that was, quote, part of a treasure removed by the U.S. Army from Victoria Peak, end quote, and that it was located in underground bunkers somewhere on the Johnson Ranch. McKee and Delanis started negotiating with Carr, who said he was willing to sell the gold back to the Noss family well below market value. The Johnsons couldn't sell the gold on the open market because they had no legitimate background claim to it. The Nosses, on the other hand, did. The gold was to be shipped to Canada, refined, and sold there. This is all according to Carr's story. Now, whether Carr was really working for the Johnsons cannot be proven, and McKee never saw the gold. What does seem clear from documents is that McKee and Alanis negotiated with Carr between 89 and 93, and in 93, Carr passed away. They continued negotiating with his partners until 1998. There were attorneys and CPAs in the U.S. and Canada that were involved, McKee's attorney put up $70,000 at one point to fund an initial shipment of gold and that that deal fell through and the $70,000 was returned. Really? It, I, did, well, I would have never expected to hear that. I was about to say, man, this sounds like a scheme, dude. But they returned the money? Now, this all has the markings of a scam, but nine years is a long time to run a con only to give back $70,000. Now, the alleged Nixon connection begins with a memo by Nixon aide John Ehrlichman, and that memo was written in 1970. While he was with Nixon in San Clemente, he wrote, quote, I was called by a Mr. Keith Alexander, who claims to have secret knowledge of the location of 742 bars of gold weighing 40 pounds each, end quote. Alexander was seeking the rights to it. Alexander's name then turns up in a 1975 book about Victoria Peak. In it, attorney F. Lee Bailey, who represented some claimants to the gold in the 70s, said that Alexander and another man, Fred Drolte, had told him about treasure. Drolte's name then turns up in an interview Clarence conducted in 2004 with a man named Richard Moyle, who was also a gold hunter. Moyle said he had worked for Drolte. Drolte reportedly told Moyle that he had been in contact with Nixon about removing some gold, that he got a key to a back gate to White Sands from Nixon. Really? And the theft occurred over Thanksgiving weekend in 1973. Now, an FBI report shows that an Army lawyer contacted by the FBI about an illegal entry to Victoria Peak area that weekend and trespassers had used dynamite. Now, while... All of these little links are not perfect. Drolte had been convicted of running guns in the 60s, so he's not the most upstanding individual. And it adds to the probability that he's full of shit. But then, so was Watergate and White House Plumber's Dirty Tricks. So, mm -mm. fueled by suspicions that the military was working her claim, Babe hired four men to covertly enter the range. Though caught trespassing and escorted from the area, the men reported that they had observed several men in Army fatigues up on the peak. An affidavit dated October 28, 1961, was signed to this effect, also claiming to have seen military jeep and weapons carriers on the mountain. Immediately reporting this activity to Babe, she contacts Oscar Jordan with the New Mexico State Land Office, who in turn contacts the Judge Advocate Office at White Sands. In December 1961, General Schinkel shows back up and shuts down the whole operation. Schinkel shows up. Barring anyone from entering the base who is not directly engaged in missile research activities. In 1963, the Gaddis Mining Company of Denver, Colorado, under a contract with the Denver Mint and the Museum of the New Mexico, 
obtained permission to work the site. For three months, beginning in June of 1963, the group used a variety of techniques to search the area. However, they failed to turn up anything. Now, Lynn Porter, a businessman residing in San Diego, California, attested to the accessibility of the treasure in the peak. On the night of September 1st, 1968, Porter drove to the peak with a friend and a civilian security guard from White Sands named Clarence McDonald. The three men had been on a hunting party when McDonald, who reportedly had consumed large quantity of beer, began talking freely about a huge stash of gold. Porter and his friends were amused at his story, and McDonald, to prove that he was not lying, took the two men to Victoria Peak. A narrow passage through the rocks kept the bulky Porter from following the other two men into the peak. He stood guard while McDonald and the other man descended into a large cavern, returning with a crudely formed gold bar roughly two and a half inches wide by seven inches long. The gold, Porter's friend stated breathlessly, ran in a tremendous stack along one side of the cavern, stretching approximately 200 yards. The two men told Porter they had taken one of the smaller bars from the stack because they felt it would be easier to handle than one of the larger bars in moving through the long, difficult passage. After some discussion, the men decided that Porter should take the bar to a close friend of his who worked in the provost marshal's office in nearby Fort Bliss, Texas. Possession of gold was against the law, and the men reasoned that the bar would provide evidence to bring about an authorized legal expedition to remove a vast quantity of gold. The men believed that Porter's friend was in a good position to help arrange an official government expedition to claim the gold. Porter subsequently brought the gold bar to the close friend who was an army major. The major takes the bar to, and told Porter to check back within a couple of days. When he does, he finds that basically in three-day interim, the major had been whisked away, transferred to the Pentagon. His wife and his two school-aged children had also abruptly left. The gold bar had disappeared without a trace. No one in the provost marshal office to whom Porter talked would admit knowing anything about the gold, and he was warned by the provost marshal himself that any future, quote, trespassing would be dealt with severely. Now, Chester Stout, for example, a retired Army sergeant, traced the removal of two large truckloads of gold from Victoria Peak, but later had to move out of New Mexico. His life was threatened because, as he was told, he, quote, knew too much. Now, in all, eight persons told Thomas G. Whittle of Freedom Magazine they had received direct threats against their lives or against the lives of their families. Sam Scott, for example, a retired airline pilot, was warned in 1977 to keep clear of anything regarding Victoria Peak for at least five years under the pain of having his home firebombed and his wife and daughter killed. The sources of this threat, according to the man who relayed the threat to Scott, were two agents from the CIA. The daughter of another man, Harvey Snow, died from a gunshot wound in the head after Snow had disregarded repeated warnings in regard to the peak. Thayer Snipes of El Paso, Texas, swore on an affidavit regarding another death. Now, this is a little hard to go through, but I'm going to try it anyway. Thayer Snipes, first being duly sworn on my oath, states that in the latter part of 1972, I had stopped by the airport Chevron station at the corner of Airway Boulevard and Montana Avenue in El Paso, Texas, to visit with a friend, Frank Foss, owner of said station. That while visiting Foss, a man we both knew, E.M. Guthrie, drove into the station in a late model Ford Thunderbird. I had known E.M. Guthrie for about three years prior to this meeting and knew him to be a husband of Letha Guthrie, stepdaughter of Milton Doc Noss. I knew Guthrie had taken an active personal interest in the fate of gold located in Victoria Peak by Doc Noss. I walked over to Guthrie on this occasion in 1972, greeted him, and invited him to dinner with myself and Frank Foss. He seemed very disturbed, nervous, and agitated and refused my invitation to dinner, saying, I'm running for my life. He also said, the mob is after me. Three or four weeks later, Frank Foss told me that E.M. had called him and said he was in Central America. About a month after that, I heard E.M. had been beaten to death in California. After he had been beaten to death, according to the information I received, his body was put into his car and the car was doused with kerosene, gasoline, and set aflame. Now, Bill Shriver, an international dealer in precious metals, proved very helpful in the investigation until his death brought the total still higher. According to a close relative interviewed by Freedom Magazine, Shriver was murdered. 
the relatives said that Shriver was, quote, beaten up in California, beaten about the kidneys and head, and died of his injuries, end quote. I mean, that's pretty distinct if that's the only two places. I mean, you skipped a whole bunch of places you could have beat him. You could have worked your way up or worked your way down, but you skipped right over some stuff. Edward Atkins of Decatur, Illinois, had been a claimant to the Peaks Gold and was vigorously pursuing the claim via an attorney, Daryl Holmes of Athens, Georgia, when Holmes died under mysterious circumstances. According to Atkins' and son, John, not John Holmes, possessed key materials which were being used to press the Army into allowing Atkins and Holmes access to the peak. These materials included tape-recorded sessions wherein Lyndon Johnson discussed the disposition of some of the gold bars on his ranch, disappeared from Holmes' office at the time of his death in February of 1977. Edward Atkins himself died reportedly of a heart attack in April of 79 while returning to Illinois from El Paso on a matter pertaining to the claim. Lyndon Johnson's name looms large with various sources claiming that the president was instrumental in in the planning and execution of the removal of the gold. The charges concerning LBJ's involvement are, one, a retired White Sands Missile Range security guard residing in El Paso, Texas, indicated that he observed Johnson and former Texas Governor John Connolly spending about 10 days in the area near the peak in the 60s. According to the security guard, Johnson and Connolly headed a team which brought in sophisticated excavation equipment to remove the gold from the peak. And they brought in their own security guards. Two, a retired U.S. Army officer said that while on duty at the Provost Marshal's office on White Sands Missile Range during the period of LBJ's presidency, he was visited by four men in a late model Cadillac who sought permission to drive to the peak. One man, a Mr. Moon, said that he was from the White House Secret Service detail, and he showed the officer a green laminated car, which stated Secret Service Division of the White House. Another man, an engineer named Richard Richardson, <laughs> told the officer that he was a boyhood friend of Lyndon Johnson's and that he had personally counted 18,888 gold bars in one stack in the peak, each weighing approximately 60 pounds. Three, Bill Shriver, before his death, told the writer of Freedom Magazine that he had a copy of a transcribed order from Lyndon Johnson describing in detail how the president wanted a military escort to handle the supply of gold taken out of the peak and taken to his ranch. Shriver also said that he had copies of other presidential messages, several initialed by LBJ, dealing with the illegal removal of the gold. A source interviewed in Mexico stated that it was common knowledge in the towns of Jimenez and Camargo that Johnson's 110,000-acre ranch in Chihuahua served as a storage for the gold and was flown in by four-engine propeller-driven aircraft in the late 60s. Another report states that the gold from Chihuahua went to Vancouver, British Columbia, during the period of Johnson's presidency. According to this source, a B-24 was used to transport at least seven loads, seven loads of 20 tons each. (laughs) Uh, Damn, that is a lot. I don't know. I don't know how to explain that other than saying that's a lot of gold. Now, this just goes on and on. There's more and more detailed accounts of LBJ had something going on with this. Well, I don't think anyone would ever uh, accuse LBJ of being completely honest. Just saying. But, he, I mean, he was president, so clearly he's... he's a <laughs> they all lied. Now, supposedly, 25 million troy ounces... No idea what, how much that is. I, that's what they used to measure gold, was that's said the, to come and smelted into old Mexican bars of 50 pounds apiece. And then they were shipped to Switzerland. So basically, I mean, we can, you can go on and on. So basically, they found a supposed crap ton of gold in this place. Well, 96 million troy ounces valued at $320 an ounce is nearly $31 billion. Let's get into F. Lee Bailey and wrap <laughs> I did not I did not expect to hear that name. <laughs> so, okay, let's do it. The same F. Lee Bailey that got OJ acquitted was representing a group of clients in the excess of 50 names, including Babe, Fage, and a bunch of other people. 
and the Army gave them a two-week time limit to excavate the peak in 1977 called Operation Goldfinder. Unfortunately, Babe passed away in 79. Her grandson, Terry Delonis, continued the family tradition, and by this time, she is featured in an episode of 60 Minutes with Dan Rather about this operation. Now, today, the Army's official position on the whereabouts of the gold remains guarded, maintaining that the burden of proof rests on the accusers. Many members of the Noss family and friends believe that the military exploited Babe's claim and that the treasure is now gone. However, Terry Delana stated, quote, We're not accusing the military of stealing the gold, but I feel that the Department of the Army in the 60s treated my grandmother unfairly. However, we've worked very hard over the years to establish a working relationship with the military, and we're certainly not going to jeopardize that by accusing them of theft, end quote. Now, supposedly they have photographs, affidavits, and relics of the gold that the Noss family actually still has. Now, Phage, going back to Phage, <laughs> this it, it reads like a damn top-secret movie. He says that a five-day dig in August of 1961 was carried out as a top-secret project, and it was heavily censored by a Secret Service report that General Schinkel and Agent Lilburn Pat Boggs from the Secret Service Albuquerque's office were involved. Why all the secrecy, though? I don't know. A heavily deleted August 31, 1961 Secret Service memorandum obtained by Freedom Magazine shows that on that date, the Missiles Range Provost Marshal met with Pat Boggs in the Albuquerque Secret Service office, the provost marshal stated that he was seeing Boggs at the order of the missile range commander. According to the memo, the commander, General Schinkel, quote, was anxious to determine the degree of interest, end quote, of the Secret Service in the gold. The memorandum goes on to state, Boggs records that the interview with the provost marshal was interrupted by a telephone call from the Holloman commander who wanted to know why the Treasury Department would, quote, permit exploration of tunnels on weekends. The provost gets pissed off and says, mm-mm. Then the Federal Reserve Bank in El Paso, Texas, gets involved. Now, there's authenticated affidavits stating that Fage and Bartlett did find the gold, and they were told to dig not from uh, General Schinkel, but from the Secretary of the Army, Elvis J. Stahl, Jr. Now, New Mexico law is quite clear on the point that there can be no mining or treasure troving on any land in the state without approval from the state land office. In carrying forward with a top-secret project, neither the Army nor the Secret Service consulted with the state land office. So on October 28, 1961, word gets to Ovanos wondering why people are digging in the basin. Now, this reaches Oscar Jordan, general counsel for the state land office in Santa Fe, that her claim was being jumped. She sends out a supervisor from the state land office, Florsheim, to investigate. He writes a memo dated November 6, 1961, that he contacted Colonel Hafe, the White Sands judge advocate, and told Hafe that he wanted to make an investigation of the land down there in question to determine if any activity on the part of unauthorized personnel had taken place. Florsheim said the colonel was not cooperative. He indicated that if necessary, he would secure a court order from the U.S. District Judge. Colonel Jaffe attempted to assume and assure Florsheim that this was all a myth. Now, Jaffe was confronted with affidavits, and when informed of said affidavits, Colonel Jaffe became quite upset. So Florsheim eventually gets the military to stop digging. Now, the Gaddis mining team ran out of its allotted time in the Operation Gold Mine, or Gold Excavation, and, quote, they were requesting a 90-day dig but were given three days. Quote, we didn't give up, Smith told Freedom Magazine in reference to the 1963 expedition. We just ran out of money. We had spent 100000 and when we ran out, we were getting close to where Fage found the bars. Sam Scott charged that the expedition was conceived to fail. I originally, originally made arrangements for a 60-day expedition. The Army cut that down to 30 and then to 10. After 19 years, this was a 
catastrophe. Phage told Newsman during Operation Goldfinder, it's entirely different. There are timbers in the passages now. It's all shored up, and the gold is gone. One source familiar with the history of the peak, who asked to remain unidentified, described the mountain as being like a hotel. There were five layers of caverns in the mountain. The top caverns are rooms held as little as 10 or 15 tons of gold. The bigger caverns were not all cleared out until the 70s. And Operation Goldfinder was a big show. Something the Army could turn around and say, see, there's nothing here. Now, according to several resources, Lady Bird Johnson, the same widow of President LBJ, reportedly called White Sands every day during the expedition in order to be kept posted. Thomas G. Whittle for Freedom Magazine states that he tried to reach Miss Johnson in 1986, but was told that any questions had to be submitted via a staff assistant in Austin. The answer then came back that, quote, Mrs. Johnson has no knowledge about the phone calls at all. The assistant said that Lady Bird was entertaining friends here at the time of the expedition, and she asserted, Miss Johnson just doesn't do things like that. It would be out of character for her, end quote. Leonard Fage, who is Basically, hat in hand, speaks at a Lions Club luncheon in Milwaukee, only to be threatened that night on the telephone. Then there was the time that he was told at supper what his kids had for lunch in the school cafeteria, their route to and from school, and a nasty voice said that their lives were in danger. An interview with his daughter Jan confirmed the fact that of the threats which plagued the family. In 1971 or 1972, shortly after moving to Denton, Texas, she received a phone call from Fage himself telling her that he had just received a call threatening all three of his children if he did not keep his mouth shut about the gold. He called her to see if she was all right. The caller knew where all three of his children were. He even knew that Jan had just taken a job at a diner in Denton. The bewildered Fage told his daughter that with the operator's help, he was able to trace the call to Kansas City, Missouri. According to her, she returned to the family home in Wisconsin not too long after that. She heard a threatening voice on the phone, and the mail caller told her unless her father shut up, he was going to die. Similar threats were made to others. Harvey Snow, for example, was told over the phone where each of his five children were by geographic coordinates, including a son who was on a U.S. Navy ship in the Pacific at the time. Snow was told to stay away from White Sands Missile Range or his children would be killed. He disregarded this warning and his youngest daughter was found shot to death the day after. A grandson of Ova Noss described an apparent attempt on Ova's life Shortly after the expedition, someone entered her house at night, forcing their entry into a window. The intruder turned on the gas on the stove, and if the grandson hadn't got there when they did, within 10 or 15 minutes, she would have been dead. As it was, she was hospitalized. He also mentions that after the expedition, her home was broken into three or, more, three or four more times. Various items connected to Doc's treasure were stolen. By the end of 79, both Leonard and Ova, the two major living claimants of the gold, were dead. So the question is, did the U.S. Army, LBJ, and Nixon all work cohesively to steal the treasure? Or was the treasure real? Because your article, Coach, said that it could have been a faux pas. So there's people out there, wrapping this up, putting a big bow on it, there's people out there. Now let's give a big summary. That says, we just did, <laughs> that says that this whole thing, that Doc made up this whole thing, but it, all of this information that I turned up says not only was the Army looking into it, you had other people looking into it. And Unsolved Mysteries does an episode on it, and then after, I think their three-year anniversary, they do a follow-up episode accounting Phage and Bartlett's, or Bartlett's account of them finding it. And then when Phage goes back, he states that the, all the tunnels have been shored up. So, I mean, I think there's enough circumstantial evidence out there that there was something in that mountain. Where that gold went, there's no telling. A lot of people say it's in Fort Knox, but supposedly Fort Knox is empty. Fort Knox ain't empty. It just ain't got as much as people, uh, the government wants you to believe. 
So theories, my theory is there was treasure in there. Was it as in-depth as the early accounts make it? Was it more than just gold? Who knows? But at the time, there was a lot of secret shit going on with the Cold War. So they could move all this stuff. And White Sands, we didn't have Google Earth, and you couldn't go out there and look and stuff like that. But, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that says the government was either A, trying to find it, or did find it and moved it. I think this treasure really existed. I don't think it's there now. I think it's bullshit. <laughs> I think the entire thing is a crock of shit. <laughs> <laughs> An hour of your life wasted. I'm just being honest with you. I was, I, I, he completely lost me when it was bars and coins and uh, gold uh, blood, fucking pigeon, pigeon blood is what lost me. Okay, I, you just tuned out after pigeon blood. I was babies. done. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I really think that. I think it was a hoax, man. You do? I really do. I know you saw, you found that article about you think that he made the whole thing up. Yeah, and all these people just ran with it because it's conspiracy theories. People just add to it. It's like a big game of telephone. True, I see that. You know, people trying to uh, make LBJ look bad, then they're trying to make Nixon look bad, then they're trying to make every, everybody else look bad. I think it was complete bullshit. Well, if you're interested, and in we'll jump into recommendations and I'll go first, but my recommendation is there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a couple of YouTube videos. Actually, there's not. There's like six. That's more than a couple. They're not really in chronological order, but if you type in Victoria Peak, White Sands Gold, there's videos that will pop up, but I suggest, my recommendation is, that you watch the episodes on Unsolved Mysteries about this topic. Yeah, they, don't, 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 don't watch anything else than that. Don't. I mean, because they do a great job, and that's where we've originally found this idea, and then it turned into this great, enormous beast. Yeah, because, yeah, uh, Unsolved Mysteries did a good job on it, and then they had an update on it, so yeah, watch both of those. The Dennis Farina versions are easy to find on YouTube. You might be able to still find the 60 Minutes with Dan Rather that discusses it, but I don't. I didn't try. So your recommendation? I just did it. Unsolved Mystery. Okay, so we both agree. Yeah, we got there the same go. recommendation. Yeah, that's first. Well, Coach, you got anything else? I could not possibly have anything else. Deuces. <laughs>